Hello, everybody. Thanks for clicking on this link to the podcast. My name is Michael. This is Liam, and you are listening to episode five of Strangleholds on America. Today, we're going to be covering a little bit of a broader yet very specific topic, uh, more along the efficacy of social entitlement programs. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Liam's putting the cart before the horse here. So we are a political, historical, all the Ecoles uh, podcasts where we just kind of look at social and political issues within America and try to discuss them in a way that we can both learn as we go and, and kind of adopt the conversation around them. And like we say, our motto is think for yourself. So we try not to force any ideas on anybody here and really stress uh, you guys doing your own research and this kind of just being a place where we can have a conversation around topics and and like learn as like as a group i guess all together it's more of a launching off platform than a deep dive uh into like how you should think and where your opinion should generate from yeah yeah and i mean at the same time we're, we're doing this and learning with you guys so yeah like william said our conversation today is probably a little bit more philosophical than our last ones have been um this was his his brainchild the one that he wanted to pick and so he said the efficacy of social pl- uh, programs but it's also like you know one of the core things we're looking at here is uh Liam, what should the government owe us like what is the government's place in society what are they supposed to be providing and then looking i guess you know more philosophically at what's going on right now and if things need to change or what how we see those things so before we really get into the episode, I just wanted to shout out our, uh, dis- uh, we have uh, Instagram, we have a YouTube, and then we're also available, on, I'm assuming you guys are finding us probably on Podbean, or we have several other places where you're located, but any of those work, and this is our second episode where we record ourselves, so if you go to YouTube, you'll be able to see our beautiful faces, and actually uh, our names, which is, I don't know, don't stalk us, please. I'm not too worried about that personally. Fans for that. But yeah, so that's just a quick shout out. Did you want to jump right in? Yeah, I think there's no better place to start this conversation than with the preamble of the Constitution. (laughs) We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, secure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do obtain and establish this constitution for the United States. So even when we were first creating this country, they very much had in mind the idea that the government would uh, help people. It would give common defense, uh, sorry, common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. It was put into our constitution that we have a few very clear objectives of a government, or at least this government. And with that in mind, uh, because you promote the general warfare, (laughs) not warfare, welfare uh, falls in there, I strongly believe that we do owe that to our citizens. 
whether or not we'd argue how much well uh welfare is uh like needed uh whether or not it counts for literally everyone yeah. how it should be spread in what way should it be distributed none of those are specified but just from the preamble we can safely say that one of the goals of our government was to have that to help uh and promote the general welfare yeah i mean you think of like the founding of the country and why all these different non non homogenous groups of people work together here a lot of that was you know whatever religious freedom or, or ideals that were different than the counterparts in britain had so it, it makes sense that they want to come together and make a group that benefits everyone and i think that's you know that's the the ideal in a lot of the governments is how can we come together and and promote the social welfare promote everyone equally and, and you know that's not always the case and i don't think it's you know even you can't even say that that would ever be a realistic goal, but it's, yeah, yeah like you said, it is, uh, there is some history behind that and that, that's directly in the constitution. Um, but it is kind of interesting if you look historically at that, uh, the idea of like the social welfare or like the, the promotion of the social well-being and, you know, the, the group mentality of that kind of didn't start until the 1930s, um, which mm -hmm. I guess I'm going to talk about a little bit later, but it's just kind of funny to, to point that out. So then building on top of that, uh, when we think about the government, then it really comes down to a question of what government owes us for being in that union, uh, being a part of that. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a very open ended question, because first it comes down to the idea of like, what what are we entitled to uh, is in itself a dodge. Uh, entitlement as a word has a very negative connotation and like the idea of the entitled generation uh, it kind of sets us up for almost a failure of conversation because when we think entitlement again it's negative it's the idea that people deserve something that they might not have earned mm -hmm. versus looking at it as like a social insurance program uh, yeah yeah no I mean I, I, and I think I know you had this in the notes, but like the idea that that like forcing the entitlement to mean that and like blanket that statement of like, you know, these are social entitlements or like people feel that they are obliged to these things uh, definitely spins it in a very negative light. And I think you like, you know, considering the programs that we're talking about and like, you know, the welfare state or what have you, like, I wouldn't say necessarily those are uh like they say entitlements like people are are talking about them in like a haughty way like it's something that um you know they're owed and i mean i think like we can say generally like that's something that i think most people would agree with like people should be you know granted a, a place to stay they should be given material clothing they should be able to feed themselves like you know in a society as big as ours and as prosperous as ours, it doesn't make sense that we have people who are very much not doing those things and not able to live, not even just fulfilling lives, but lives where they have just even the material goods to, to sustain themselves, the, the basic necessities, essentially. So, yeah, you remind me of a lot of politicians and how they'll say stuff like, um, if you work 40 hours a week, um, you should have a living wage. Mm. Uh, if you're like trying to climb that social ladder that should be the opportunity that's like the american dream in and of itself yeah, yeah. uh and you know 
it makes a lot of sense because if uh, if we are in we are <laughs> the wealthiest nation of all of the countries in the world, why should our citizens, even those that are at the bottom rung of the social ladder through their jobs, uh, be struggling like that? If we have so much abundance, like why should even people who are at the bottom struggle to live? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, we can't lose sight of, it's like there's so many, well, it's such a broad concept in itself. Like, you know, I, I think of, I'm thinking like homelessness, you know, mm. like those people very much have their own, um, you know, set of responsibilities. And, and, you know, I, we don't, we can't say with certainty, every person that is homeless, like, you know, didn't do that to themselves. Like, you know, I feel like making blatant, blanket statements um, kind of detracts from the fact that like those people had their own individual responsibilities, what have you. It doesn't mean that, that necessarily, um, they were given the right opportunities from the beginning, but it also doesn't mean that they didn't have them and squandered them. Like, you know, there's some level of, of um, like nuance we have to have there, I think. Like, at least I'm thinking in my perspective of like those issues. So diving even deeper into this, we live in a capitalistic democracy uh, mm -hmm. right now. And so when we think about a capitalist democracy, it kind of boils down to like, at a certain point, we have to decide between capital, more capitalism or more democracy. Uh, this is made in a million different decisions, choosing government power over corporate power, um, choosing to like cut social security, uh, trying to grow the American dream by like shutting down monopolies. Like we, we make this decision constantly. Mm -hmm. And when it comes down to it, like for a capitalist system, when we think of a pure capitalist system like monopoly, we don't just disappear from the board. Uh, when if someone fails, if they have medical expenses, if something out of their control happens, or even if they like do a, try to start a business and they're unsuccessful, they don't just cease to exist. Uh, mm -hmm. They have uh, families, lives, and that makes it very difficult because we, as a nation, have to square between those two ideas, like keeping that democracy or keeping that pure unfettered capitalism exactly where you draw the line is up to the individual but like it really like where you stand personally can very much influence where you stand on uh social insurance programs yeah yeah i i think you make a good point um and this is something that i did like kind of when i was looking into the topic uh when you mentioned like just risks of life. So, um, one sec, let me have it. Let me just pull it up. We think of, let me, like you uh, mentioned, just uh, things that naturally occur in life that, like, you know, unforeseen. There's really not a lot of ways that we can prevent them, or you know, just random acts that that you know might come along. So, you know, I don't know. I look at it as like you know, getting into a car accident or some mm -hmm. kind of, you know, disastrous thing happens, you're you know, in the hospital, there's a cancer screening, and then, you know, you might have cancer. It's like those things are just risks of life. And they're, they're they kind of come along and they happen to all of us. And um, I kind of, you know, one way to look at welfare and um, like the social good is like mitigating those to kind of make an equal level for everyone. Like, you know, these risks are things that happen 
and we all understand that and accept that. And so there can be programs in place that would then be, you know, mitigate those factors and do it on an equal level. So um, like Medicare, for instance, is an example. Mm-hmm. Social Security, those are, you know, kind of ways to, to prevent or, you know, potentially um, address those issues that I think, you know, capitalism might leave in the dust or might leave as like a forethought for a lot of people. And it's like you said, like just because, um, you know, some like a worker, let's just say, is is uh, deemed not able to work, it doesn't take them away from, you know, it might it might subtract them from the capitalist equation. It doesn't mm-hmm. subtract them from life. It doesn't, you know, their their issues don't go away, and they have the bills to pay, what what have you. So I think, uh, you know, one of the ways that I I kind of compartmentalize that social welfare is balancing those risks a little bit and and making it a little bit easier for the people who might already begin the game a little bit in the negative or disadvantaged state so people who are lower income people who are you know more likely you know at high risk of whatever um people in the inner cities i mean there's a lot of different underlying factors in all those things you bring up a pretty fantastic point in saying that uh we need to deal with the underlying factors and that not all people are born uh in equal settings like when we think about um, entitlement spending uh, here in the United States, the vast majority of it go to people who are 65 and up, or sorry, based off of a 2010 study by uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, 53% go to people who are 65 and up, 20% go to the disabled, mm-hmm. and uh, 18% go to working households. So in reality, we have a very mixed pool of people uh, getting these benefit spendings um, and these uh, social insurance policies. And when people are making these blanket statements like, oh, people don't need like uh, whatever it might be, social security, food stamps, whatever, they should just work. It's difficult to take that argument in good faith because they're just ignoring so many things that might have led before that. Uh, if they were born in stable, uh, in like a stable household, if they are even 65 and older and if they're working because the idea of retirement is important to us here in America, mm-hmm. like that whole building on itself of what we deserve and what let, like what we even started with sets us up for a question of like what are we comfortable with accepting as personal responsibility versus like caused responsibility and you know i again i don't know where the draw the line for that type of thing but just pointing it out is kind of important at least in my eyes yeah yeah that was kind of my whole like that we have to have some nuance and understanding and and you know um helping the people who are less fortunate or the people who, you know, unfortunately are put in these awful situations. But like I said, it's not always an unmitigated or, um, you know, unforeseen, you know, event that happens. It could just be literally they, they get addicted or something like that happens, um, you know, but again, we can't say for certain, we can't say this like one thing happened and that's what led to it. But, but yeah, to say that like all of those people are the same, is doing them injustices as well because there's definitely people within that who mm-hmm. who you know put themselves in that position so um yeah, yeah. it's a good thing to say and a good way to to couch that statement um, uh there's one thing i do want to uh 
point out before I let this go. Whenever I see a lot of these arguments, they always say, well, we're covering some people who just don't want to work, don't want to do something. Mm -hmm. And that argument bothers me because of two reasons. One, rather than saying, let's rebuild the program so that we incentivize people properly so they're not doing that, uh, they just say, let's get rid of the program. And two, based off of all of the statistics I've seen, where the majority of it's going to people who are elderly and disabled and households that are generally working and might have just come, a come across hard times where mm -hmm. their job might have moved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like most of our like in social insurance programs are going to the right place. Even if we were to highball it and say that nine, uh, one out of $10 is going to someone who like is just sitting around doing nothing that's still like a lot of money that's going to people who need it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that, that came up in my research and that I think connects a lot with what you're talking about is the idea that like, you know, how much of our spending on these social programs actually goes into the pocket of the people who need it. Because I think uh, we kind of tend to think a lot in, in terms of like on this issue that, you know, all the spending we're putting into those, into these, you know, communities into these programs is actually directly going to them. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, we look at the number of like, you know, how many billions of dollars the U.S. is spending on aid or, you know, on these issues. And, and we're like, okay, this is a crazy astronomical amount. And, and we don't think like, you know, we think directly that money's going like, I guess, as a check or something to directly to these people. Like, that's not exactly how it works. You know, there's, there's uh, you know, systems and bureaucracies, unfortunately, that go behind a lot of that. Mm -hmm. so, the, the, there's money taken out and I think to the extent um, you know how much money is detracted or lost in that process of like converting you know making sure we're vetting who is getting this money you know making sure it's going to the right people that it's going to help the community like to a lot of value not a lot but some value is lost within that mm -hmm. and so I think it's important to note that and and that's kind of a contentious point is like how much uh, spending is actually going to these people versus how much is being lost and not lost because I mean there's people that are on the ground laying the groundwork for these policies that need to be there so like just paying their salaries is important I mean mm -hmm. it's not like we're throwing this money away I think in a lot of people a lot of uh, libertarian perspectives will, will kind of shout that as being one of the reasons why these social programs are so ineffectual um, and I wouldn't say that they're not that there's some examples of like um issues and, and you know, there's definitely a lot of, of ways we can rework the system but yeah like you said in, like going to the extreme and saying these you know, we're spending so much on this that it should just be removed i think is just way too much of a uh that's such a far out reach like they shouldn't be grasping for, for those straws there, there's definitely some middle ground we can we can work in there yeah i think the economist really puts it best when they say any praise for the efficacy of social uh, of safety nets must be tempered by the realization that for one reason or another, these folks could not make it on their own. And that, that mm -hmm. line really puts a lot of things in context very quickly because while we can talk about whether or not it's good or bad or the program's effective or not, if yeah. these people couldn't make it on their own, like we can't just let them die on the street. Like yeah. very simply speaking, we we can't just imagine they don't exist we can't just push them out yeah we can't just like alienate them because they don't fit our stereotype of like 
the the traditional uh, worker person who's you know doing just fine with the nuclear family in, in yeah. this system like there's like you said we can't just make them disappear because they don't fit within our bounds and they don't they don't represent the positives of capitalism and i think i don't know this is kind of a, a reach but it reminds me a lot of the the people who would argue against the uh the death the death count for COVID 19 and how like there this is a whole other thing but like you yeah. know the idea that that i would die for the economy well, and like any number of deaths is you know, it's a very serious issue. Like them discounting that is is just it's just craziness. I mean, yeah, that connected to me. Yeah, uh, not to drive that, not to dive too far into that rabbit hole. I think the thing that bothers me most about that argument is that like, if the people who are dying would have added to the workforce, gained the money over their lifetime, and then circulated that that money, like the the economy would be so much more for it but that's aside from the point so mm -hmm. unless you have anything other uh else to mention i thought we'd dive deeper into um like the specific um social welfare program uh third let me read that we could dive more into like the economics of these social welfare programs like the yeah. more nitty-gritty yeah yeah go for it all right so first question that I asked myself during my research was, do social welfare programs make people stop working? Uh, this very traditional kind of Republican talking point, I, I would more call it fear-mongering personally, uh -huh. uh, bothered me because when we learn, when we have new ideas moving in, like the freedom dividend and the universal basic income, a lot mm -hmm. of these ideas are fundamentally challenging uh, the idea of like earning a living wage with um, mechanization on the rise with people being pushed out of their jobs after working them for 20 30 years and then being told to just switch industries into tech yeah like, just, just get a new skill <laughs> new skills or learn to code right that's the one yeah like does it make it stop working in my does it make people stop working and overwhelmingly my evidence is pointed to two things one mm -hmm. it does in a few very specific cases um, for younger kids who are going to school, um, rather than dropping out, they'll normally stay. And two is when people are going for education or taking more time off for childcare. But overall, most benefits don't just stop people from working. Uh, unless, of course, we're talking about something that creates a ceiling. Uh, the best way to describe that is like, when, our, when we give welfare to someone, the more money they make, the less welfare they get. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like the idea is that we're we're working them off of it. But the problem is that once you reach a certain level of income, it doesn't make sense for you to go farther unless you get a huge jump. Because if you're suddenly losing your welfare benefits, that means that you're effectively losing income or gaining income. Yeah, you're losing income and gaining more work and more effort to be put in. I mean, it's very ironic, and it reminds me again of, of uh, the COVID relief, the like. <laughs> protection programs and and how people were making more uh like you know getting government checks and stuff like that than they were getting them from their jobs and like that was the republicans big talking point behind why uh, extending those programs was just causing the economy to suffer because less people were actually working and, and I, I love how they don't actually say something like 
I wonder if the problems is with the jobs, but anyways. Yeah, like they never they never question if the, the prices of the wa- the, the wages should be increased at all. It's always like these people are just, you know, taking their government check and sitting on their asses. It's like, no, there's a pandemic going on. They don't want to, you know, they might be living in a household. They don't want to get their relatives sick with it. Uh, but I don't know, this, this kind of co-aligned with my research, um, specifically talking about the uh, TANF, which is the former, um, it stands for Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. And it was kind of connected with the, um, where is it? The Aid for Family, it's for AFDC, which is the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, which Mm -hmm. is one of the social programs that came about in the 1930s through FDR and the New Deal. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the one of the least, less likely or the least liked of those three main programs. So there was social security, there was Medicare, and then there was the aid for families with dependent children. Um, and that one is very similar to what you're talking about. I think when you referred to the welfare system and the idea of like giving, it was mostly single mothers and it would be attributed to mothers with more children would receive more aid in the thinking that they would be caring for the kids. So they'd need more money to pay for them. And, and again, like you mentioned, the Republican talking point a lot for a lot of that was, the, you know, these people weren't getting jobs because they were on the aid and they were, they were, you know, receiving, they had the ceiling that hit them so that they were receiving more aid than they would be receiving if they were working. Um, and so the TNAF, which, you know, was very similar to that, um, but essentially what it did was it added a personal responsibility or the name of the act was the personal responsibility and opportunity reconciliation act and Mm -hmm. really reformed uh the understanding of welfare and what it did was it was any aid uh, the aid to families was now temporary um and that meant that they could only have it for two years uh, at, at one time so they could only have it for two years but each person could get it for five years in total Mm-hmm. So the idea was like it set a limit on how much they could get, as well as the fact that it set requirements in place for them receiving it. So there was work restrictions. Um, so essentially, you you know you had to be at at a work at a place of work to receive the aid. And the mm-hmm. idea was that it would reduce welfare. It would reduce the amount of people that were then on welfare because if they were working at the same time and their benefits would slowly be, uh, you know, within that two-year cycle, they would lose them then it, was, it would greatly reduce the amount of people on welfare. And this was passed with support of Bill Clinton in the 19, uh, 1996. Mm-hmm. And this was something that the Republicans had been trying to pass for quite a while. Uh, and so what we see is it did definitely reduce a lot of the welfare, but it didn't reduce the underlying factor. It didn't reduce the poverty. So like we mentioned, like people were off of welfare, but they were working, you know, these dead end jobs, they were working minimum wage jobs, not receiving the benefits that they needed. So essentially the, the social mobility of these peoples was awful. They weren't going anywhere. Their skills weren't increasing. They weren't gaining more knowledge. They were just getting a meager, meager wage to subsist. And so we see that, especially like the 2001, uh, not recession, but economic uh, downturn as well as 2009, where a lot of these people who probably originally were enrolled in that welfare program were then had to reinstate it because they had lost their jobs in the economic downturn. Mm-hmm. So you can see that the poverty kind of was underlying all that. I mean, the welfare, we had like welfare reform, but it didn't really have anything to change the underlying issues. So that's kind of where we are now. I think we still have that same T 
ANF system in place. So there is a lot of issues with that. What's interesting to me is that these welfare programs, if executed properly, could be very effective in increasing social mobility. We can objectively say that money that goes to the poorest of Americans generates the most amount of wealth because yeah. it is mo the most circulated mm -hmm. in the sense that a single dollar given to someone who's low income can create more money because it creates more economic activity. Yeah, and, and it changes hands so yeah. many more times than it would say like a you know billionaire. But and so like people making these meager uh, salaries that's barely enough to subsist it kind of it bothers me that they're told they are asking for too much or they should just put in more effort because if your goal is just to survive and you're in that type of thinking you don't exactly have time to go to school get educated and push for what you want like for mm -hmm. expanding your skills and that's hard and uh you know giving them the help to get out of those jobs is important however and this is why i think so much of this fails it fundamentally breaks up uh, the kind of social hierarchy that a lot of people imagine with capitalism with the idea being that like you win at capitalism with good ideas with hard work or you're at the bottom because you're like not you don't know enough you're not good enough you don't know how to spend the money you've improved yourself yeah yeah and so that every time that we introduce these uh benefits and try to help raise people out of these holes we are fundamentally changing that system to try to raise people up mm -hmm. and some people are very much not comfortable with that because they are like i earned where i am like why should someone else but on the other hand should they die because they shouldn't be moved up? Like, it's just, it's a very, I'm getting very deep in like a moral ethical argument <laughs> about where people should be. And it's hard to, yeah. to give a definitive answer. But the main thing I'm trying to point out here is that if we're ignoring these people, if we're trying to just move on without having this conversation, like, what do you expect to happen to them? I don't, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, like what, you know, if we're not giving them this aid or, or, and a lot of them will say that uh, private charities are, you know, more effective at pro providing aid and, 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 you know, social mobility for these peoples, which is very disputed of a claim. But I mean, that's mm -hmm. a lot of their, their, uh, like, you know, talking points on that side. And like to play devil's advocate, I think a lot of the people who would, you know, be uh, like libertarian people who are like anarcho capitalists who think that, you know, capitalism on its purest form, like without any government regulation would, would uh, solve for these issues, um, you know, really hit that brick wall where it's like only so many people in the system can really get ahead. Like at yeah. what point, like never, not everybody can be a CEO, not everybody can, can, you know, can make these skills and, and, you know, run a, their own business. Yeah. Like why does Jeff Bezos deserve to make him like $11 million a day or something like that? Saying, I think it's even, it's yeah. Even and yet we're over here debating about what the minimum wage should be versus setting like what a cap for a wage should be like that idea. Yeah. Ca yeah wage caps is. Yeah. Is like the fact that we've never even considered it. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily pushing for that right now. I'm just saying like that double-edged sword blows my mind because essentially what we're doing is we're telling the poor to get good 
yeah. learn, do better. And then when when we're talking to the richer uh, top 1% or just like you do you, get as much as you can. And yeah. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that because fundamentally, if someone is going to be a billionaire, someone has to be poor. And when I say someone, I'm talking thousands Some, of people. Someone's, yeah. Well, if, like if for Bezos to hold that much money, that means so many more people have to not have that much money. Well, think about it like, so Jeff Bezos is employing how many, you know, millions of people, let's just say across the country. Mm -hmm. The idea is he is paying these people a wage and their amount of effort has to be higher than that wage for it to be worth it for him to hire them. So it's like, you know, these people are, are, they're providing this capital system, this capital for him, you know, by their wages and by their skills and their uh, benefits. And then they're giving back, you know, getting back whatever, you know, most likely the minimum wage or most likely whatever uh, ceilings or you know, sets they have for that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah. Like you mentioned, um, and we can get even deeper into this. What, cause like, um, when we're thinking about that double-edged blade and how it never applies to the rich, yeah. um, the federal reserve chairman, Alan Greenspan has called, uh, has basically pointed out something called tax entitlements, which would be the opposite of the social entitlements we're talking about. Because under current tax policy, based off the Tax Policy Center, the top fifth of the population receive 66% of tax expenditure benefits compared to 10% of entitlement benefits. Uh, the middle 6% of the po population receives a little over 31% of tax expenditure benefits. So uh, the top, uh, sorry, the bottom fifth receive 2.8% of tax expenditure benefits. <laughs> uh, like when we think so entitlements and all those types of things what we never think of we're always imagining things like social security like mm -hmm. food stamps like how the poor need help but in reality like these multi-million dollar companies GE for example walking away with a zero dollar tax zero dollars in federal income like that should apply both ways and the fact that it doesn't at least most of the time, yes, is a, uh, I can imagine a few specific instances where people call bullshit, but like yeah. it's mind blowing to me because it tells me how we view those people. We imagine like the top, they deserve to be there for whatever reason. They earned it uh, for whatever reason, even though the majority of people are trust fund babies being yeah. totally realistic. Like the, yeah. I think the top 100, like 60 of them inherited their wealth, but anyways. Like for some reason they deserve it. They know how to spend that money compared to people who are just subsisting, uh, who are in like, the bottom. If I can, I mean, this goes back to your point about the uh, American dream. Like we're literally watching those people uh, climb the social ladder. You know, make this capital. The provide in in our minds, they're uh, you know the ones with the best ideas that can then disrupt the market enough to put themselves on top. I mean, it's like you know that's the the wet dream of every American is to be that person and. It goes a lot back to reminds me a lot of like the commentary you had for the gun culture. That's like America's economic cultures. You know, we we fetishize the uh, the CEO, the corporate CEO, the person that can can you know rise from the ranks, you know, as a meager meager worker to then become like this just billionaire hedge fund manager, whatever exactly their job is. Like that's not important. The idea is that they can do it. And I mean, 
like you mentioned, there's so many setbacks and so many uh, pitfalls for just regular people to get there. It's like not even funny. I mean, it's, uh, and again, it, it like limiting, barring the fact that it's literally impossible for everybody to achieve that American dream. Like there is, there is not enough money in the world, in the U.S. for all the people in the country to be able to do that. So it's like, there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers. And I think we have to realize that. And I think that's where like, you know, we, the fetishization is always on the, on the winners. And that goes back to what you're saying. Like, we're always thinking about these social programs are for these people who don't deserve them or for these people who somehow, uh, you know, are gaming the system. They're just, they're just sitting on their asses, not doing anything all day. Yeah. And that's another thing that bothers me with Republicans because they're over here going, they're giving constant like tax entitlements. Mm -hmm. And yet they're like, oh, we now need to cut the social benefit programs. Yeah. And it is very literally moving money from the poorest Americans to the richest because people think, oh, if we give a tax cut to uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Jeff Bezos, they'll make more jobs. But then those jobs will be extracting more wealth from the bottom because they'll have to put in more money than they're worth, and then they skim the money off of that. And it's, it's a cycle that it's just constant in bringing money up to the top. And it's just like that very basic fact of the people with all of that wealth are either, like like you mentioned, the Jeff Bezos making whatever, 11 million. It's not a day. It's like, it's something, it's like a second. It's like a minute. It's something crazy. <laughs> and obviously, that's not Actually, all. Actually, I'm curious. Typical. It's not like literally cash being deposited into his account a lot of that is coming from stock options because he's probably the contributing fact owner of uh, amazon he makes two thousand five hundred dollars a second based off of business insider dude so wait how long has this episode been going Uh, let's we could do some math and see how long how much he's made in the past oh hold on let's see let's see this episode's been going on for about the 30 minute mark so that's 30 times that like 2000 number all right so he's made seventy five thousand dollars in the time of this episode i don't know about you i could pay for my college i could pay for your college i could pay for <laughs> literally all of my friends colleges without but <laughs> yeah yeah but so the idea we could buy a house together on the water that's a great town payment <laughs> i think you're going too far with that one but but essentially the idea is that that's not all literal capital you can invest that's stuff in, that's stocks that's options that's you know his whole portfolio but the, but it's you know to that extent it's like you know then again it's not circulating if it's sitting in his company if he's putting it back into the company there's some of that is going to get distributed to the workers but you know the, who's making those decisions who has those options it's the shareholders it's the stakeholders mm. of the company and that's kind of just how we've accepted things are i mean that's how companies are run and that's how ceos do it they don't you know the workers are never uh, asked i mean and that's like isn't that the big thing with amazon that their workers are off treated very awfully they don't even have uh, the right to unionize in some places yeah they will literally shut down a warehouse over it they've yeah, done that issues. and it's like you know you look at the astronomic wealth of those companies and then they're not giving them back to the people who are making that not making that for them but you know, contributing very heavily to that. And so it's a very unequal system, not even just the welfare system, but the, the idea of where the wealth is going. And then and, to still redistribute that uh, from the poor to the highest and, and that and the most wealthy. And the fact that if we try to do it backwards and give to the lower people, they're gonna, there's so many objections behind that or why those people work for their money. And they, they're you know, lazy, they're this, they're that. They'll spend it on alcohol. They'll spend it on like whatever. Yeah. Uh, like building on that and diving into your point just a little bit deeper here like whenever these people 
are giving to charity, right? You'll have like Jeff Bezos gives 20 million to charity. I, I hate to keep using Jeff Bezos, so I'm probably going to switch it up to Warren Buffett after this. Like they, they're like, oh, like look at these big millionaires. They're giving to charity. They're doing all of this. And I, I hate that with a passion personally. Because they, they word it like, oh, look at this generous man with so much money, we can't even imagine it. Just giving mm. away some of that for yeah. the good, for like, for the for good. The and good. I, I find that so irritating because I'm like, if they were paying proper taxes, if their company was paying proper taxes, they wouldn't have to do this. You would, like the, the money would be there in the government coffers to give out to social programs like they they wouldn't need to donate anything and for us to suddenly say oh they're such good people they're suddenly giving this much money away i'm like no 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 this shouldn't be like a bonus this should be like a hey you're barely making up for the money you're dodging out on (laughs) not on like anything else or on the fact that all those all those donations are then tax exempt and like you know give them tax breaks and the fact that they donate that money so it's like you know, to what extent are they just trying to reduce the amount of taxes they'd have to pay by doing those donations? Like, is that, you know, is that it's not even morally like a choice of helping the poor in a lot of those cases. Mm-hmm. And then it's another question of like, who, who are they donating to? Like, you know, are they, donate, are they donating to companies that they own or that they, you know, that they, somebody they know is operating? Like, there's so many you know, issues with all that. But then I think. What, and then it, they can pick and choose the poor people they're helping. But what people would say to kind of go against your point on, on the fact that if they had been paying those taxes, people would be distributed, the wealth would be distributed more evenly. I, if we look at like the programs that are in place right now, a lot of them do help. But then again, a lot of them aren't addressing those underlying issues of the poverty, like, you know, the poverty ridden situation these people are put into. So and rather like, than we just got to fix the programs, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like, in a video I watched uh, regarding it was it was talking about um, people within this uh, program like that and the, mm-hmm. the TANF one. So people who were in that new program that hinged on them having a job. So many of uh, those, those people were waiting around, just waiting to get into educational uh, classes that could then teach them skills to then get better paying degrees or jobs even just because they were working very meager, you know, 10 you know, minimum wage jobs. So it's like, there's a lot of issues, and I would agree that bureaucracy is a bitch, and people are going to try to shovel off the top and take what they can, where they can. But it's it's the right of, I mean, it's the to promote the social welfare, like you said, is a very essential part of it. But so there's one other thing I want to point out here: the mm-hmm. highest earning 20% of families made more than half of all U.S. income in 2018, based off of the Pew Research Center. That blows my mind because uh, what we're looking at is a situation where these uh, these highest income are just gathering more and more wealth and yet we we never have an issue with it because very frankly speaking if we were to discuss uh as openly as we are right now on a political landscape um like, hey, the top 20% are making too much money. One, it goes against the capitalist democracy type of d- disagreement. Two, it, go against, it goes against the neoliberal idea we run this country on. Three, we'd have to take down the lobbyists and everyone else uh, yeah. who wants to keep it this way. Four, the idea of punishing people for success uh, will come up very quickly. Like, 
we have so many stereotypes and like ideas that just are not uh, are making i wouldn't say are not helpful so much as are more obstacles about why we shouldn't affect these people and again that builds more on my argument that like we can think of every reason for someone who's poor not to get help but we can think of every reason for someone who's rich to get everything they want. And it's just, it's just very unhealthy and it's getting worse. And I personally believe this will probably end in like a class warfare type of situation, but wealth inequality is something people don't want to fix right now. Or should I say politicians do not want to fix right now. No. And, and, I don't know, COVID is not going to make it any better. COVID in many ways has made that kind of inequality a hell of a lot worse. Um, I'm going to wait, you can't hear me. Yeah, it has made things way, COVID-19 has made things way worse for those people. And, and it has also distributed a lot of the wealth again from the people who are making so much. It's showing the fact that you know, so many people can get kicked out of the economy. And those people, like you were mentioning, who are so high up are still making inorbitant amounts of, of uh I mean, it's just i mean who would have thought republicans would be the one passing that check that's another <laughs> quick thing that's that blows my mind just a few years ago no one would have believed it but sorry yeah yeah it's kind of crazy and then it's so funny uh, their take on on uh the government in economics and in uh, the market and saying like you know now people need relief or now we need to bail these companies out given the fact that they always focus on uh, government being separate from government, they're, or they're being separate from uh, our, our economic system. They're always, you know, laissez-faire, like regulation is going to kill competition. People aren't going to be able to get ahead. And at the same time, they're like, well, you know what? We can bail them out. We can give these uh, too big to fail banks their money back. Yeah, and, and it he, directly against the cap, the capitalistic notions that there is some kind of competition, and that pure competition would would get rid of these chumps and these people who are, are you know spending this money so mm-hmm. recklessly. And instead of saying you guys are out of business, somebody else is going to come take your place. We're just subsidizing their their failures, which is exactly what happened in two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. So it's very disheartening seeing everything that's been going on and seeing how not much has changed and and. The conversation is still in the same place as it's probably been since 2009, 2008. Um, yeah. Yeah. uh, Honestly, I have totally been dragging uh, the basics of Republican principle through the mud for the past 40 minutes now, I think. Yeah. Um, At least on for welfare. And I do want to stress here that while Republicans are much worse, I firmly believe Democrats won't change anything either because uh, the Republican and the Democratic Party are both very much run by business interests because the Republicans are closer to their base, which believe in that more capitalist idea, and that happens to align with their donors and their big money interests versus Mm -hmm. Democrats know that their base is looking for this more dramatic change and their base is more fractured because – like there are so many different ideologies spread in the idea of liberalism um and it makes it so that their like major business donors disagree with the base so they have to find a way to fix that 
And it makes it so that I just don't think the Democratic Party as it functions right now would even be able to push or pass for this type of thing because it would threaten their existence. Fundamentally, they are both parties for business rather mm-hmm. than like for like welfare and all of that type of thing. And that is painful. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that isn't it the idea that the Democratic Party is supposed to be the is it the Democratic Party supposed to be the workers' party? Isn't that uh, kind of the whole thing? But then at the same time, not really. Like there's so many contradictions to that in so many ways that they play it off. So yeah, I and yeah, why why would they try to go against their own benefits or why would they try and, and add new ideas into the mix if they just like how things are now? Yeah. The only Democrats and when I say Democrats, I say that with a load of asterisks at this point added on that are like actually trying to move the Overton window and get these new ideas in are those who are in such secure seats that they Mm -hmm. won't get threatened. We're thinking Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. I'm not sure if Alexandria Cortez falls in that. Cortez? AOC, yeah. AOC falls in that. Her district is like eight lean, 80% uh, Democrat. So it'd be really damn hard to upseat her with a uh, Republican or even any other Democrat at this point. I mean, She's, she has a huge huge platform now for the progressives. So. Yeah, so like these, the only people who are willing to make these type of dramatic changes are those who are so secure in their own power that they don't have to worry. Yeah. And that's not great because like sh- that small contingent of people shouldn't be the only ones trying to represent the base and they shouldn't only be representing the base because they know they can get away with it and they don't have the consequences someone in a closer race does. Yeah, and that's and those those like what handful of people can't make many legislative changes outside of executive orders or things like that. I mean, they need the the not even at this point they need Republicans, some Republicans on their side as well, even in the Senate mm-hmm. to get anything passed. So, and then you look at even just to get a simple majority of the fifty senators plus fifty one from uh, from uh, Harris, it's like. Joe Manchin, the mm-hmm. uh, senator from uh, West Virginia, like yeah. to make sure he's on board. There's so many like fringe kind of people that you have to then get supported on that. It's the, the amount of issues that there is and the amount of like ways that we would be able to resolve them. I don't know. I don't see that coming to a head. I don't know. Honestly, this uh, I, I do want to admit this program has definitely turned more into like a when will class warfare start wealth inequalities a bitch kind of situation i just don't i mean i don't see that being realistic either I, yeah yeah i, I guess I, it was a we definitely had a couple divergent uh, roads on this, on this episode honestly like i think what this really boils down to is to you what is the point of government is it to serve the collective good and help its citizens uh, how much help does do these people deserve? Whether or not it should be trying to keep up like the good of everyone, or trying to balance it, or they should work towards what would help the most people. Uh, it's it's a very vague area. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but I can safely say that, in my opinion, uh, the government should definitely focus on helping the most amount of people. Because if it exists to protect its citizens, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, 
for ourselves and our posterity, like it can't accomplish that if it's too afraid and too controlled by like moneyed interests and by politicians that don't want to like push against big business where they're okay with oligarchies rather than monopolies. Like mm -hmm. it's just, it bothers me. And especially how we frame social entitlement as like a, they deserve it rather than like a, they failed in the capitalist system we live in that will happen. It's a capitalist system and we what need to help them. In. Yeah. That's the least what's going to happen. Um, yeah. And I, like I personally, having paid taxes for a few years now, disappointingly, <laughs> like I don't mind being taxed at a higher rate, especially going into an engineering field uh, because if I know the money's going to the right places, if I know it's helping people, if I know it's generating more wealth and growing our economy because they will very literally generate more wealth with how it circles through the economy, bringing back the American dream, stopping people from dying on the street, like that makes me feel better about like the life I live on top of the fact that it makes it so that I don't have to feel guilty or feel need to pay to charity or do anything else because if it's doing that for me, I've done my common good. Not saying that I can't give more. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people want to feel that way. And I think a lot of people don't feel that way or they, you know, whoever may be, whatever the given political uh, circumstances and environment might not agree with the fact that they're paying taxes to whatever, like a Democrat might feel like their taxes going to Trump's policies are are, uh, you know, against their ideals, but that's kind of the right we have to do. That's kind of the right we have to uh, take and, you know, how we, how we approach things. Mm. We just have to kind of keep an open mind and hope for change, I guess. Hoping for change is very, very disappointing. It's very disheartening. Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, I think we can both definitely agree that if you want change, ooh, actually, you know, I'm going to end this at least this thought on a lighter note here. Okay. We can think of an innumerable amount of obstacles to change something. And we can look back at it and say it wasn't enough and we can argue all the way if it should be reformed again and changed once more. But ultimately, unless we're pushing for these changes, nothing will happen. And unless we try to overcome these obstacles, like we'll be living in the society we're at because right now isn't acceptable. Mm -hmm. So the only option we have is to change it. So I don't see why we should let any of those obstacles hold us back, especially considering while us as individuals are exceedingly weak compared to corporate money, lobbying, and everything else, us as a collective could easily uh, overtake whatever we wanted. Yeah, I think politically, ideolog ideologically, that's... Uh sound judgment i don't know like we said there's only so many people who are even comfortable coming out and agreeing with the things that we've been talking about here so i think to get that bigger group of people on board you just need to push that overton window you need to push the the ideas of the party and the platform to make it more wider and make it so that people can accept and, and just even just say these things without looking like you know being called socialist or communist or whatever you know are the slanders of the day so yeah i it just it takes time i think people are so we see all these issues and we think like we have the solution or we know what to do 
when it's tough to say that we, we definitively have an answer. And I mean, we, nobody has you know, an answer. It's not, that's not how things work. And that's not how the government is run. That's not how the country is going to get any better. But at the same time, we can't just sit here staring at these issues and, and pretend like things are going to get better on their own. So we just have to bite the bullet and say, we're, you know, we're, we want these things to change. We want to see these and like be specific about what actions we want to take. Cause I think that's a, that's a huge aspect that a lot of people forget. It's yeah. like we get so tied up in the lofty ideals of X or Y or Z or, you know, redistributing wealth, you know, making it more equitable for everyone. But what does that look like? What kind of policy would be put in place to actually make that happen can be so hard. And that's why I think why it's so difficult in our current climate to get anything through is that we have so many different perspectives and just asking two different people on the street, they'll tell you two different things about should these, should these people that are poor get money or should we, you know, increase these social programs? You'll get maybe somebody saying to defund them and somebody saying that they need to be run a completely different way. And I think we just have to exchange ideas and come to the conclusions that just kind of expand them and make them more reasonable by having these conversations so yeah we're, we're, i mean if we don't have the conversation we'll never ever be able to change it exactly. fundamentally exactly. Uh, do you have any other points you'd like to bring up i don't think so i think this was an interesting episode i think we uh, i don't know i saw it going differently in my head but i think now that we've done it it we definitely brought up a lot and it was a very wide-ranging topic and i think it was good just like we said to talk these things out between the two of us i'm glad to hear it i uh, i enjoyed the episode a lot uh yeah. but okay for reading for this week if i could suggest you guys something i would 100 percent go with learning a little bit about um mr greenspan uh or should i say um alan greenspan the Reagan appointed chairman of the Federal Reserve, because he's the one who brought, uh, or at least introduced me to the idea of tax entitlements and kind of opened me up to, I, to the idea of like the double-edged sword that exists where the rich kind of get away with what they want versus the poor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's very much worth more research. Yeah, take a dive into Alan Greenspan. And is, I know that you, that was a reference to the hearings on, uh, that issue like does he as he speak more about that then does he have like a writings on that do you that you know or you're off just... the top of my head no i mostly read these uh hearings what the article said okay cool mm -hmm. cool yeah check him out see what he has to say I'm, I'm interested to see if like his ideas have changed over time at all that would be interesting i think i think they might have i don't maybe know maybe get more refined yeah but yeah. please follow us on our instagram podbean youtube Facebook? No Facebook. No Facebook. <laughs> but not really Twitter. It's Strangleholds on America. So you can look us up on any of those sites. Otherwise, please think for yourself. This is nothing more than a launching point. <laughs> and uh, have a fantastic weekend. Be back next week.